Hello there, this is Future Forecast and I'm your host, Daniel Trainer. Today we're going to talk about some of the new technology happening right now in consumer electronics, transportation, energy and possible future innovations. Broadcasting every weekday on KUIK 1360 AM as well as weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM. If you want to listen to episodes in your own time, be sure to check out the playback on SoundCloud by searching Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer. But without further ado, let's buckle up and find out what's this week's Future Forecast. So talking about items for consumers, well, one of the topics that keeps coming up is VR. And you might have heard of this a couple of years ago, there was VR on your smartphone, you had the smartphone based VR. Well, I've got news for you, it's dead. Now, why do I say this? Why is it important as well? Well, let's go back to the start of when this happened. So initially there were two big players in the space. There was Samsung Gears VR, and that was powered by the Oculus, which is owned by Facebook. And then you had Google with their Daydream. Now, both of them are quitting with Google omitting support from their newest phones and Oculus confirming that Gear VR has reached the end of its road. So although things aren't entirely shut down quite yet, when it does happen, you've got to kind of keep this in mind. There was a lot of people that got these headsets. It kind of makes you think, what's going to happen? You've got all these headsets, they're just going to lie around. Well, let me give you a rundown of how this initially worked with these headsets. You kind of, you dropped your smartphone into the headset, you put it up against your face, and then if you wanted to be fancy, you could use wireless controllers. And you can interact with things and all that kind of stuff. Well, the smartphone, it took care of the tracking of motion. It displayed the 3D content while on the headset. And you might say to yourself, well, if it was so super cheap and portable, what happened? Why are we not using this instead of the expensive VR headsets? Well, it all came down to the phone itself and it had many constraints and totally limited just how far you could go. Uh, with VR, it's quite demanding. Now, using a phone for VR is totally battery draining. And it also means that the phone is unavailable to do its normal duties while it's being used for VR. And that really limits user adoption because most people, they really don't like to be without their phones. It was also really cumbersome. Uh, the user attention was a problem in part because the phone-based VR could be a bit of a hassle. Oculus CTO John Carmack acknowledged that and he said, you know, if you're using a device, you're popping your phone out of a phone case, then you're docking it in with a the headset, then you're undocking it afterwards. You know, you're going to use it twice and that's it. But that wasn't the only limitation. One of the biggest things was immersion because the motion sensing in a phone-based VR is quite limited. You've only got three degrees of freedom. Now, this meant that you could sit in a position, you could look around, but you had to stay stationary. You could kind of swivel, but that's whatever, right? The headset could not track motions like leaning in closer or kind of looking around, moving around the virtual world. Phone-based VR weren't able to keep any of the features that you would expect with virtual reality, and the experiences that were definitely getting watered down. And developers, they just thought, you know what, we're gonna put our work into the proper dedicated VR. And as an example of being able to properly move around in a virtual space, use a purpose-built VR headset like the Oculus Rift or the HTC Vive, and they allow what's called six degrees of freedom movement. 
and that lets people move in and out, kind of look around. Sometimes you can physically walk around the virtual environment. But you know, in the end, phone-based VR, it was quite an important precursor with the much more advanced VR headsets, and you can get them today quite easily. But even with its niche capabilities, it really didn't get set apart anymore. Uh, one really big advantage with the phone-based VR was that, you know, it was portable, it was wireless, and it was self-contained. But even then, it's not really something that it can do that well anymore. Uh, the Oculus Quest, which was released earlier this year, also has a self-contained and completely wireless setup. Uh, and it suffers none of the limitations that you get from a phone system, like a really quickly draining battery. Uh, phone VR hasn't been able to keep up. But like I said, we've got all these headsets. What are we actually going to do with them? You know, 2017... Google shipped over 10 million cardboard headsets. Gear VR sold alone 5 million worldwide. And, you know, since user retention was that bad, a lot of these sets were even just given out for free. And it's fair to say that a good number of them are probably gathering up dust right now. But now that the support is officially ending totally, What's actually going to happen to these empty phone-based VR headsets? Well, there's good news, and the headsets, they're fairly simple devices, and they're quite easy to tamper with. So since they include optics, you could just put a screen in there, and you could use it like a, a basic head-mounted display. Kind of cool. And there's a couple of projects that you see that take advantage of that, like a remote-controlled telepresence uh, kind of thing, where you're virtually there, but it's, it's not a total VR headset. There's lots of different possibilities that you could do with it. Uh, and perhaps some of the older phones that still have that VR compatibility, you could maybe have it as a dedicated Netflix home cinema for your face. But saying all of that, there is one really important thing to note about this. And it might change kind of how VR for phones has kind of been going on a downward track. Google has announced that it's open sourcing the whole Google Cardboard. So you might see these third-party developers get in, and it might bring in a fresh breath of life. So we've talked a lot about VR, especially in future forecast, but second to the headset, there's the controls. Now, we know that Valve has the new game, Half-Life Alex, and that's kind of going to be the Wii Sports for virtual reality. And it's going to have finger sensing all built in, but... What if there was a better technology? What if there was something much more advanced for interacting with a virtual environment? Well, the best method is to not really have a controller that you hold. Now, Valve got close. They said you've got the straps on their controllers, the knuckles, where you can just let go. But you're still holding on to something. What you really need is some sort of a glove. Now, we already know that you can get gloves for VR, and they even allow you to feel, kind of squeeze, see how hard an object is, and even with, like, heat. So what about capturing hand poses as well with that? Well, this turns out to be quite complicated. Uh, the problem is coming down to computing, particularly with human-centered computing and motion capture technology. Human hands, they're very complex. Uh, it's a very intricate system of flexors, extensors, and sensory capabilities serving as our primary means to manipulate physical objects and communicate with one another. So the accurate motion capture of hands it's quite relevant and it's quite important for many applications like not only just gaming, uh, augmented reality and virtual reality domains, 
but you've got robotics and the biomedical industry. So a team of computer scientists at the ETH Zurich and New York University have advanced the research by developing a user-friendly stretch sensing data glove to capture real-time interactive hand poses with much more precision. Researchers say that the main goal for their stretch sensing gloves is that they don't need a camera-based setup for it to work. Uh, they don't need any additional external equipment either, and it could begin tracking hand poses in real life with only minimal calibration. So Glosser, who's a PhD student at ETH Zurich, said, To our best knowledge, our gloves are the first accurate hand-capturing data gloves based solely on stretch sensors. The gloves are soft and thin, and they make them very comfortable, very unobtrusive to wear, and even while having 44 embedded sensors. They can be manufactured at a low cost with tools commonly found available in fabrication labs. Glosser and collaborators had a goal, to overcome some persistent challenges in the replication of accurate hand poses. In their work, they addressed several hurdles, such as capturing hands in motion in real time, and in a variety of different environments and settings, as well as only using user-friendly equipment as an easy-to-learn approach for setup. Uh, they demonstrated that their stretch-sensing soft gloves are successful in accurately computing hand poses in real life. Even while the user is kind of holding a, an object, like you could hold a can or something, in conditions such as low lighting, even then it worked. So remember, this is something that none of what the current VR controllers, they, they can't do this, or at least they can't do it 100% accurately. So this is definitely something that is game-changing. Now, the researchers utilized a silicon compound in the shape of a hand equipped with 44 stretch sensors and attached this to the glove, which was made out of soft, thin fabric. To reconstruct the hand pose from the sensor readings, the researchers used a data-driven model that exploits the layouts of the sensor itself. In future work, the team intends to explore how similar sensor approaches could be used to track maybe even a whole arm, you know, to get the global position and the orientation of the glove, perhaps even a full bodysuit. Now, as soon as I heard that, you know, you're probably thinking the same thing. The first thing that comes to mind is Tron. And it, it really is true that this is not science fiction. This is a real thing that works on a small scale. So currently, researchers have fabricated a medium-sized glove, and they'd like to try and expand to different sizes and shapes. And this kind of thing is truly something that could change how we perceive virtual environments. And although you might think, well, isn't it better to have non-wearable tech, like with cameras? Because think about, you don't want to kind of hold controllers and interact and you've got these sensors all over the place. But having a glove or even a suit and you have it incorporated maybe with a GPS device, you'd be able to walk pretty much anywhere. You could have your whole house as a playable environment. Uh, plus, the main difference would be the ability to add touch and feel to the gloves. And that's a technology that already exists. So truly, this type of gear combined with the current headset technology we already have, that could add up to a truly amazing experience. You know though, although there's good things that can come from technology, sometimes it can go a step too far. So over in China, artificial intelligence judges yeah, they're, they're a thing. Uh, you could even call it kind of like the cyber courts. And verdicts, they're all delivered through a chat app. Welcome everyone to China's brave new world of justice. It really just sounds so dystopian. But anyway, China's encouraging digitalization to streamline case handling with its sprawling court system. 
using cyberspace and technologies like the blockchain and cloud computing. And that all came from China's Supreme People's Core. The efforts include a mobile core offered on popular social media platform WeChat, and it's already handled more than 3 million legal cases and other judicial procedures since its launch in March. The paper was released this week as judicial authorities gave journalists a glimpse into the cyber court, the country's first and this was established in 2017 in an eastern city of Hanzhou to deal with legal disputes that have a digital aspect. In a demonstration, authorities showed how Hanzhou's internet core operates, featuring an online interface with litigants appearing by video chats as an AI judge, complete with an on-screen avatar, prompts them to present their cases. Cases handled at the Hanzhou core include online trade disputes, copyright cases, and e-commerce product liability claims. And these litigants can register their civil complaints online and later log in for their court hearing. So officials said putting simple functions like that in the hands of the virtual judge helps ease the burden on human justices, who monitor the proceedings and make the major ruling in each case. But this digitalization, it's kind of needed, uh, actually, especially over in China, to just help the courts keep up with the growing caseload created by mobile payments and e-commerce in China, which, by the way, has the world's largest number of mobile internet users at around 850 million. Now, Ni Feng, who's Hanzhou's Internet Court Vice President, said, Concluding cases at a faster speed is a kind of justice, because justice delayed is justice denied. Ni added that the use of blockchain technology was partly useful because it helps streamline and create clear records for the legal process. Since Hanzhou courts established, China set up similar chambers in Beijing and other southern metropolises, which altogether have accepted a total of 118,764 cases and concluded 88,401. This mobile court option on the WeChat app, which is by the way China's leading social media messaging platform, and it allows users to complete case filings and hearings and evidence exchange without physically appearing in court. It's been launched in 12 provinces and regions, and Zhao Shang, who's the Chief Justice and President of the Supreme People's Court, said, Courts nationwide are experimenting with a range of online tools. He told a panel that as of October, more than 90% of China's courts had handled cases online to some extent. And this whole legal push fits in with the nationwide effort, which is championed by President Xi to make China the world's technological leader with the heavy assistance from government. And this is a strategy that's caused a little bit of alarm over in the US. Because you gotta remember, this includes the construction of massive high-tech surveillance apparatuses and quite an ambitious effort to challenge the US's dominance in blockchain, which China could use for anything really. You've got using it for digital money and streamlining government services and tracking communist party loyalty. So yeah, this kind of sounds like another episode of Black Mirror. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show's broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live.
So talking about transportation, you know, we've, we've seen a lot with electric cars. And one thing that we don't really say is how are we going to actually be able to build all of them? Because there's so many companies saying we're going to come out with this electric car. We're going to make 20 for fleet are going to be dedicated electric. The problem is batteries. Now, there's one company that's kind of done a little bit something different here, and it's one you wouldn't expect. A big update from General Motors. So this week, GM and LG Chem announced that they will do a split ownership of a battery production joint venture. So this is deepening their existing relationship. And LG Chem is actually one of the leading suppliers of lithium-ion batteries. And they actually make batteries for GM's Chevy Bolt. So the companies, they're going to invest about $2.3 billion. That's quite a lot in a joint venture. And starting in the middle of next year, they plan to begin construction of a battery factory in Lordstone, Ohio. And that plant was a point of contention because there was a 50-day strike in GM's US factories led by the United Auto Workers back in September and in October. Now, this demand, like I said, for battery cells it's going to rise dramatically over the next couple of decades because you've got all these automakers that are increasing electric vehicle production. Like you've got Volkswagen, Toyota, they've all announced that they're now doing these battery joint ventures and they have to. You've got like Tesla, which is the industry leader for this, and they had to make their own factory with Panasonic. And that's been going on since 2016. But GM may have opted for a joint venture merely just to continue buying batteries from LG Chem because it wanted to have more control over its own battery supply. You know, the automaker it plans to release 20 electric vehicles by 2023, and it doesn't want to face a situation where it's like, oh, well, sorry, we, we don't have any batteries. We're, we're short of batteries. And that could force a lot of delays and deliveries. And think about it, GM's a big company. They're going to have to pay all those employees while they maybe have to wait for batteries. So it's definitely a big preventative measure. GM's obviously going to have the first access to the Ohio plant's output, which wouldn't necessarily be the case if it was just buying the batteries from the factory operated by the supplier. And Ed Kim, the vice president of industry analysis at Auto Pacific, said, GM and LG Chem's factory also has the potential to achieve economies of scale and create cost savings for GM on what is the most expensive part of an electric vehicle. UBS estimated last year that batteries made by Panasonic at Tesla's Nevada factory were less expensive per kilowatt hour than any competing battery, including those made by LG Chem. So GM and LG Chem earlier this week highlighted a plan to develop battery technology as another potential route for lowering costs. But the partnership's not without its risks. And Jessica Caldwell put this really well. She's the executive director of Insights at Edmunds. She said, there's always a chance that two large companies will be culturally incompatible. And when each company has an equal stake in a partnership, decision-making can be made very difficult. So there genuinely is a lot of potential concerns that lie beyond just this GM and LG Chem control thing. And many of GM's upcoming electric vehicles are actually going to be sold in China. And there's that question over whether the batteries imported to the US, are they going to be subject to tariffs? And then you've got the demand for electric vehicles that are from GM. I mean, we're talking about from GM. Is that demand going to go up? You've got Fords now getting in the game, all these other companies. It looks like they're all chips in on making sure that they have this fast growth. And everyone will just kind of say, ah, oh, whatever, I don't want a Tesla, don't want a BMW. I'm going to get myself a GM electric vehicle. So you can kind of see where this is like, eh, what's going to happen? 
but is it possible that GM could actually be able to develop and maybe even produce and sell a cheaper EV than Tesla? So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Now, the Tesla Cybertruck prototype, the infamous big futuristic box, well, it's been spotted in the wild in Los Angeles, and the consensus is that it really does look very, very big. Now, you know, I've heard people, they, you know, they've warmed up to the design a little bit. They kind of quite like it. At first, they were like, no way. Now they're starting to warm up to it. But there's still a few people that find it very polarizing. Now, seeing it on the stage at the unveiling, that's one thing. But now starting to see a few sightings on the road, it looks to be even more imposing in traffic. Now, this is the second sighting that we've seen of the Cybertruck prototype in the wild. And I'm starting to guess that this is probably the only one that they have right now, the only working Cybertruck in existence. And when I say this looks massive, I, I really do mean it looks huge in traffic, uh, especially with the super high ground clearance. Now, Elon over Twitter mentioned that they were gonna maybe make it a little bit smaller to fit in the garage a little easier. I think they were gonna remove an inch in the height and shorten it about six inches. It's not gonna do anything for the interior space. It's not gonna change the bed length. So it's all good on that side. But regardless of that, in these photos, you can actually see the color of the truck. And it's really cool because this was in a low light condition and it's quite interesting. The stainless steel color almost looks like a metallic black. Now keep in mind that Tesla's Cybertruck body is made of ultra hard 30 times cold rolled stainless steel. And if you've ever seen a DeLorean at night, it's very similar to that. It totally changes its color. Plus, if you do a quick search on Google for Cybertruck, you'll see a couple of people have done quick photoshops to show what the truck would look like in colors. And just looking at how flat this thing is, you could do a wrap on it. It wouldn't be very expensive. And you could change the colors. And if you didn't like it, just peel off, put a new one on. Now, Tesla recently also updated that the production timelines for the two higher-end versions of the Saab truck are actually going to be happening sooner. They're going to arrive late 2021. Uh, I think, and Elon tweeted this, there was 44% or something like that wanted the dual motor, and there was another 40% for the tri-motor, and there was only like 15 or 20 whatever percent for the rear-wheel drive model. So I'm guessing because it was a high demand for the higher models, they flipped it around. The question is, why are people going for the dual motor? I guess we're just gonna have to wait and see, see what people kinda do with them. But my guess is, I think a lot of people are gonna change their orders much closer to the 2021 build date. Now, it's been a while since I've seen anything in the news about Mercedes. And you know, they used to be so far ahead of the curve when it came to technology. But with EVs, that kind of dropped off. Now, when I say that, uh, you know, they did a lot of prototypes and they were way ahead of their time. But Mercedes is actually coming out with an electric car and it's called the EQC. And believe it or not, it's going to be released in the US early 2020. This isn't something that's going to be 2021, 2022. It's just around the corner, a couple of months. Now, the EQC 404-matic, it's quite a long name. Uh, that's going to be launched under the new brand that Mercedes has called EQ. Now, like I said, they've obviously been a little bit behind the race for production EVs. But a few years back, Mercedes made an electric version of their Gullwing SLS supercar. And unlike a Tesla, it has four electric motors, one for each wheel. Now, the EQC also has a compact electric drivetrain for each axle. And this is gonna actually reduce a lot of the power consumption. 
So the drivetrains are configured differently. Uh, so you've got the front, which is kind of optimized to achieve high efficiency in the low to medium load range. And then you've got the rear motor, which is designed for a sporty driving experience. So together, they generate an output of 402 horsepower with a peak torque of 561 foot-pounds. So this is definitely the real deal. Now, the lithium-ion battery has a total capacity of 80 kilowatt hours for about 260 miles range. And again, to be honest, that's actually quite good, especially when you look at the competitors like Audi's EV. This is quite a lot more efficient. So, however, when you compare it to a Tesla, it's just not quite as impressive. Uh, for reference, the Tesla Model Y, which is, again, similarly is going to come out early 2020, a couple of months' time, has a 75 kilowatt hour battery, so five less than the Mercedes, and it has a 300 mile range. So you can kind of see what the comparison is there. But something nice is that if the mile range isn't enough to get you to your destination, Mercedes has their M-Box system. And that's going to be able to find you a DC fast charging station nearby. So if you're really in a, an emergency, don't worry about it. Now, the onboard charger makes the most of the external power, with the battery being able to recharge from 10% to 80% in 40 minutes. And the EQ, it's got its navigation, it's got its driving modes, it's got departure times, charging current, all of that. And it can all be controlled through this M-Box system. But probably the most important part of this is, this is a legacy automaker, and it's properly getting into the EV game. So regardless of what people say, you know, these companies, they bring brands recognition and many years of experience. So things like the interior, they're going to be just as nice as a regular gas Mercedes. So although this is just a small bit of news, with the design language changing rapidly with cars going into 2020, I wouldn't be surprised if you see legacy automakers going back to making their true unique designs. I mean, Mercedes just recently, they had an auto show and they had this 1930s Roadster EV. It's just insane to see what they can do with the design in these things. And it's only something like an EV platform that you can do that with. So now that they've got one, it'll be cool to see what they come up with. So you've got all these automakers starting to claw their way into the game. And you kind of would think, oh, this is kind of interesting, but uh, what about something a little bit more sporty? Well, you, you're not going to believe this, but Lamborghini and electric cars, turns out that they've put something together that really is quite a lot better than even anything Tesla has. Now, they teamed up with MIT to develop a new supercapacitor technology that dramatically improves range and performance potential. And yes, they already figured it all out and they patented it. And it's for this new synthetic material that's going to be used in the construction of supercapacitors. Now, while large-scale production requires further research, the initial results are highly impressive. You've got energy density, you know, how much can be stored in it, and it can be increased way up. Uh, there's the potential, as they said, for it to go a lot higher than what they already have. I mean, putting it in terms of like a gas car, you've got the cubic capacity, like the CC of an engine. And you know, as you increase the cubic capacity, the power goes up too. Well, so does the energy density of the supercapacitor. If you increase the surface area, it goes up. And this material, it does this by allowing much more electric charge exposure, meaning more energy can be retained. And Lamborghini already has this. They have a hybrid, it's called the CN, and it was revealed at the 2019 Frankfurt Motor Show. And as it sits, 
it utilizes the very latest supercapacitor technology, which right now is used mostly in racing cars. So Lamborghini expects to kind of see these new advances. They're going to outstrip any kind of existing technology, even in the coming years. In addition to working with MIT's chemistry department on new material, Lamborghini also worked with its engineering department on battery structure. And the goal here is to develop batteries that can be integrated into a vehicle's structure and potentially take load. Stefano De Mansali, who's the chairman and chief executive officer of Automobili Lamborghini, said, the joint research with MIT fully embodies our values and vocation for anticipating the future. A future in which hybridization is increasingly desirable and inevitability necessary. And this got me thinking, if you're going to make the structure into the battery, think about it, you could never do this with a gas car. Imagine having your, your car's body full of gas. That just wouldn't work. You've got a fuel tank. That's what that's for. But with batteries, you really could just have it as the structure. Imagine what car designers could do with that. I think we're going to see some really amazing designs come out, especially from Lamborghini. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. So energy. A lot of energy kind of uh, breakthroughs have helped a lot of other industries. You've got the wind turbine industry kind of helps with electric regeneration for power. You've got all these types of things. They all go hand in hand. But when we talk about energy for the future, you know, it'd be really nice if we could just have an artificial sun. Now, I know that really sounds like science fiction, but China already has one. Actually, they don't even have one. They have multiple artificial suns, and it's in a thing called a nuclear fusion reactor, with the latest set to power up next year. So construction for a fusion research facility based in Chengdu, which is in the Sichuan province of southwestern China, is going really smoothly, and apparently it should be operational in 2020. The facility houses an HL2M Tomac machine. And the device, it's got an approach to fusion called magnetic confinement that contains hot fuel in the form of plasma. And this is considered a more promising kind of out of several methods of how to generate thermal nuclear fusion power. Unlike nuclear fission or the splitting of atomic nuclei as it's widely used to create heat to generate electricity, fusion combines to achieve the same purpose. So it's still, it's an experimental science, but fusion imitates the sun, which has internal reactions transforming lighter elements into heavier ones while releasing energy. And according to the report, the installation uses hydrogen and deuterium as fuel. China is actually one of seven members funding the ITER, an engineering project that is building a Tomac nuclear fusion reactor in France. And fun fact, it's considered to be the world's largest magnetic confinement physics experiment. But I think the most important thing to know is that plasma and magnetic field manipulation can not only provide power, 
but also a variety of other technology. Sometime in mid-2020, we're going to see a drastic breakthrough for transportation with technology originating from fusion power. Now, one of the more conventional ways of generating power is offshore wind farms. Now, a company called Orsted is due to open the world's largest offshore wind farm in 2020. Hornsea Project 1 will be located off the Yorkshire coast in the United Kingdom, and it's going to cover 407 kilometers squared, and that's going to be comprising 174 turbines. With its 1.2 gigawatt capacity, the power is expected to generate enough to power over a million horses. Homes. The journey of Horse C1's project began back in 2010, 10 years before the projected completion date, when the Horse C Zone was awarded as part of the Offshore Wind Round 3 program by the Crown Estate. In its entirety, the program will see four record-breaking offshore wind farms being constructed off the east coast of the UK in the North Sea. Hornsey 2, which is going to closely follow Hornsey 1 project, uh, that's going to be planned for a completion date of 2022, so very close. And the second part of the project is going to generate even more power than Horse C1. It's going to be supplying enough power for 1.3 million homes. And then you've got Horse C3, which is going to expand more with plans to create a wind farm large enough to power over 2 million homes. And finally, there'll be Horse C4. And although plans are currently in the development stage, it can be assured that it will continue to develop on the energy generation potential of the previous wind farms. So Orsted is putting a significant amount of effort into Horse C1 project, creating a wind farm that will be considered the template of future wind farms that need to generate huge amounts of powers. You know, each of these 174 wind turbines, they're going to reach a height of 190 meters. And as well as that, you know, it's going to be the world's largest offshore wind farm. The project's also going to have the world's longest high-voltage AC offshore wind export cable system. It's going to be about 700 miles long, and that's going to be able to bring all that energy into the national grid. And I think it's important to note that wind power accounts for the largest share of renewable energy production in the UK. You know, 20% of its entire energy usage. And this is followed by renewable biomass and then solar panels and all of that. So places like the UK are best for wind power. You know, you don't get that much sun over there, but you get very strong winds. Scotland obviously tops all of the places in the UK and it's considered to be the windiest location in Europe. So harnessing the great potential to produce wind energy is going to play a key role in keeping, you know, the country's future energy demands and carbon footprint goals, with all the UK coal power plants closing entirely by 2025. And what happens over the next five years is likely going to pave the way for the future of energy usage as well. So news like this, it's really interesting to see, especially when it comes to geography and how to make the choice between wind and solar really easy. So we've talked about a lot of forms of power and how to harness renewable energy. Well, let me talk a little bit about solar now. So Amazon has revealed details of a new renewable energy project in the US and Spain. Together, there's three solar projects and they're expected to generate nearly 700,000 megawatt hours of energy per year. So the project in Spain is going to be southeast of the city of Seville and it's going to have a capacity of 149 megawatts. Then you've got the facility over in the US and that's going to be in a place called Lee County in Illinois and Northern Virginia. And that's going to be a combined amount of 180 megawatts. Amazon said that once it's finished, the solar facilities would provide enough energy to fulfill its network in Europe as well as Amazon Web Service data centers. 
Because you got to remember, some of these data centers have massive computers and they're kind of like the modern day gas guzzlers. They're the electricity gas guzzlers. So while Amazon's aiming to green its operations through the development of renewable energy facilities, it's not immune from criticism. Back in June, it was one of more than 700 firms targeted by 88 investors for not reporting environmental information. The aim of the investors was to push businesses like Amazon to disclose information via the CDP for a non-for-profit platform which enables companies to divulge environmental performance data. A few months earlier in April, thousands of these Amazon employees, they kind of came out and they did this big letter, this open letter to the CEO, Jeff Bezos, and the firm's board of directors, imploring them to take action on climate change. In September, Amazon co-founded an initiative called the Climate Pledge, which assists signatories to become net zero carbon across their businesses by the year 2040. It also launched something called a transparency website, which it uses to report what it describes as sustainability commitments, initiatives, and performance. And the site also has information on the firm's carbon footprint, which it reports being 44.4 million metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent for the year 2018. But Amazon's not alone in its desire to become more sustainable. Last week, for example, there was the Inter-IKEA Group, who said that we'd invest 200 million euros, which is about $220 million, to accelerate its transition into what it describes as a climate-positive business. The group, which among other things develops and supplies IKEA's product range, said the money would focus on two areas. Investing in schemes, quote, aimed at removing and storing carbon through reforestation and responsible forest management, and using renewable energy in its supply chain. Like many major companies around the world, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But I mean, if IKEA can do it, that's gonna be a pretty good thing. In its sustainability report for 2018, IKEA said its climate footprint was estimated to be 26.9 million tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. So this is an increase of 2.8% compared to 2016. And the rise IKEA put down to the growth of the IKEA business. In the report back in March, IKEA also noted that decoupling its growth from the greenhouse gas emissions would take time and adding that it expected emissions to increase for a few years before decreasing. Whatever way you want to look at, we are heading towards a cleaner future. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show's broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. So it's pretty clear that, you know, IKEA is probably the most exciting place in the world. That's where people go with their families, you go there to kind of have fun. Well, you know, you know what IKEA is really like, but I'll tell you, it did get a little bit more interesting. Now, IKEA has announced this week that it's partnered with the Mars Desert Research Station, and they're going to try and furnish the habitat with space-efficient furniture that theoretically could be put into use for future Mars colonies. 
So this research station has six teams of scientists and they spend about two weeks living off oxygen packs, food and water rations and all that kind of stuff. And it's really cool because they have to traverse areas around the research station because remember this is like a dress rehearsal. So they've got all-terrain vehicles, they collect rock samples and they take atmospheric readings and it's all in preparation for sending humans to Mars. Now, the Swedish furniture giant, uh, which first began kind of working with the Mars Society, which actually runs the station, uh, they got together about two years ago when IKEA interior designer Christina Levenborn spent several days living in the habitat. Uh, Levenborn designed a line of furniture for small spaces based on her time there. And we're gonna get back to that point a little bit later. But you know, IKEA, it's unique because they make more space out of less space. And that's always been with their product design. The company's brand of Swedish minimalism and, you know, it's all squared off, it's usually collapsible, or, you know, sometimes it's made out of thin, lightweight materials, uh, and that's wherever possible. So let's just disregard the debate over, you know, materials they use and durability. IKEA's furniture is more like lightweight, mid-century modern furniture. Uh, we're used to more today, like, big, bulky, plush furniture, and that's kind of more traditional American style. But when it comes to space, we really need to think about weight, because we can't always lift up all this heavy furniture to make astronauts feel at home. And that's another point, you know? Uh, astronauts, when they want to stay long-term in space, you, you can't just say, okay, here's your space. Go and enjoy this, this area, this little cube. So rather, they kind of want to make them feel like they have some ownership of the space, but you don't want to wreck that functionality, especially when you're dealing with an already tiny space. So this development with IKEA that they're putting into practice, we'll all be able to kind of see how it might actually influence our own furniture. And who knows, you might go into IKEA next time, and hey, in no time, we'll be able to buy our own Mars couch. Now, Starlink. We talked about how, you know, there was some problems with astronomers. They were looking up and they were like, hey, this Starlink's right in our line of sight. We can't look up into the sky anymore without it kind of obscuring our view. Well, one of the Starlink satellites for the next batch, which is the next 60 that will launch late December, is going to be treated with a special coating. And this is going to be designed to make the spacecraft less reflective. So likely, this is going to lower that interference with space observations. Now, SpaceX president and COO Gwen Shotwell said, we're going to get it done. Now, at the moment, uh, SpaceX has already got, in orbit, 120 satellites that beam high-speed internet. And by the way, there's thousands more that are going to be launched over the next few years. But even after just the first launch back in May, you'll remember we talked about, you know, these astronomers were complaining about this. You know, these extremely bright satellites messing up with their work. Well, that got everybody concerned uh, that the constellation will interfere with scientific research and the views into the night sky. However, it's pretty clear that SpaceX were trying to figure out a solution for this. And Shotwell said they'll be putting the coating on the bottom. And she noted that it's just an experiment. They're not quite sure if it's going to work. And quote, we do trial and error to figure out the best way to get this done. Like I said, with even the first reports of, you know, Starlink satellites disrupting astronomers, the company had taken that issue very seriously. And Shotwell wanted to make that very clear. She even said, we want to make sure we do the right thing to make sure little kids can look through their telescope. Astronomy is one of the few things that get kids excited about space. But the coating that's being applied to one of these satellites, it's in the third batch, like I said, of the Starlink, and it's kind of going to be towards more of a permanent solution. So as more satellites get deployed, obviously this is going to get implemented. 
And if we take our minds back a little bit, you'll remember Shotwell said that the company planned to launch batches of 60 satellites to build the constellation that by mid-2020 should be able to provide global coverage. But she said, you know, nobody knew that this was going to be a problem. And we didn't think of it. The astronomy community didn't even think of it. So we're just going to have to see, you know, this experimental coating. Is it going to make the satellites less reflective? Could it actually affect performance? Uh, you know, if that's something that has to get examined. And quote, she said, it'll definitely change the performance of satellites thermally. We'll have to do trial and error, but we'll fix it. Now, this next piece of news is really quite dramatic. So it looks like SpaceX is adjusting its Starship plans to expedite development. Uh, so as we know, you know, there was the Mark 1 that kind of exploded, and then there was Mark 2 that they were building. But they've been proved to be not flightworthy. Uh, they now want to just go to Mark 3 uh, as quickly as possible, it looks like. So the plan is to just be able to perform the first Starship flight. So if we take ourselves back a little bit in the Starship development journey, you know, you probably heard me talking about Boca Chica, Texas, and then we had the Florida team, and they were kind of working, it was kind of like friendly competition to see, you know, which location is going to be better suited for Starship development. And the Florida-based team, they were building a vehicle that was similar to Mark 1, it was Mark 2, but SpaceX eventually realized that in order to perform the first flight, they were going to need a more robust vehicle. And that's where Mark 1 and 2 came in as the lessons learned for the development. Now, the new vehicle, which is Mark III, is already undergoing construction. And this is now in Boca Chica, Texas. And it's being built by a unified team. So a lot of those Florida-based crew members are being moved over to Texas as soon as possible. Now, by building the Mark III with a combined team, First of all, they're going to be able to build it a lot quicker, and subsequently, it's going to get into orbit much quicker. Now, that does mean that most of the Starship operations in Florida are currently on hold. However, there's a lot of progress that's still being continued to modify Pad 39A, where the Saturn V launched, near the Kennedy Space Center, and that's going to be to support Starship launches. So I don't know how long they're going to continue with that. Are they maybe going to take some of the team over from that, the 39A team? Are they going to bring them over to Texas? We're just going to have to wait and see. Uh, the first signs of collaboration between the Florida and the Texas-based teams, they were kind of seen at the end of November. And why did I say that? Well, the Starship bulkheads and all the other equipment, it was shipped on a vessel called Go Discovery at Port Canaveral, which is only a little drive away from the SpaceX Florida facility. And the equipment, that Starship equipment, which was constructed by the Florida-based team, has now arrived at the Texas Mark III construction. So they're being assembled and you can kind of spot them, you know, you've got the bulkhead, you've got the nose cone, you've got the steel barriers that are going to be used to construct Mark III's tank section. And while there's some small components that are going to be saved for Mark I, that one that exploded, uh, they're going to be used for the Mark III, like the wings, but it's pretty clear that the large majority of the new prototype is built completely from scratch. So this includes a brand new nose cone, uh, rather than repurposing the one that was on the original Mark I. And just on that, actually, the Mark I nose cone is currently sitting idle on a stand, having never been put together with the Mark I Starship tank. So that really does show that they are totally redesigning it. So as we remember, you know, it exploded with the tank pressurization tests, and that was all the cryogenic liquids inside. Pretty much the whole of Mark I is going to be scrapped. However, we learned over Twitter that parts of it are going to be used in Tesla's new special edition Cybertruck. Uh, because they use the same Starship stainless steel. So SpaceX is currently preparing the facility at Roberts Road, 
uh, inside of Kennedy Space Center, and that's expected to take over most, if not all, of the original SpaceX Florida operations. And this will make transportation to the launch site quite a lot easier uh, for future Starship builds in Florida. Uh, but that being said, it's unclear when the new construction of this Florida-based Starship could begin. And, you know, now SpaceX is focusing all its resources on Texas. So we're a little bit in a limbo, but either way, Starship is actually being built a lot quicker now. Now, it's nothing new on the International Space Station to have AI, but there is a new AI going onto the ISS. Now, this was already launched on the SpaceX CRS-19 mission, and it lifted off from Cape Canaveral, Florida. It's already docked with the space station, and on board was a robot called Simon 2. Now, this is an astronaut assistant developed and built in Germany, and it's been modified with equipment for new tasks. So, like its predecessor, and yes, there was a Simon 1, uh, Simon 2 is going to be used by the European Columbus Research Module. So, Simon, if you want to know what this looks like, go on YouTube and check it out. It looks weird. It's a spherical, free-flying technology demonstrator kind of robot, and it's equipped with artificial intelligence, and it's designed for human-machine interaction. Christian Karash, who's Simmons' project manager, said, Simmons 1 was our prototype. It landed back on Earth on the 27th of August 2019 after 14 months on the ISS and has now arrived at Airbus in Frederickshaven. The DLR Space Administration commissioned the technology experiment from Airbus and Bremen with funding from the German Federal Ministry of Economic Affairs and Energy. Simmons AI is based on the IBM Watson's technology, and Simmons 1 went into operation on the 15th of November 2018, and it was the world's first AI system on the ISS, and it was assisting German ESA astronauts uh, like Alexander Jurst, and Karash says, with Simmons 2, we're looking at building on the success of the Simmons demonstration. At its premiere, Simon will demonstrate that AI-based mobile applications could be very beneficial on the ISS while working with Alexander Jurst for 90 minutes. It's planned that Simon 2 will stay on the ISS for up to three years. So apart from the AI, uh, Simon 2 has got more sensitive microphones and more advanced uh, kind of sense of orientation. And the AI's capabilities and stabilities for the complex software applications have also been substantially improved. Another important step for Simmons evolution is its extended lifespan. Uh, during its operational period, they're going to look at uploading the AI to the ISS cloud. Crush said, on the journey to Moon or Mars, the crew would be able to rely on an AI-based service assistant without any permanent data link to Earth. One specific application for Earth would, for instance, be helping people perform complex tasks in areas of poor infrastructure. And this is giving me a weird vibe of 2001 A Space Odyssey. It sounds like we're going to rely on these AI to kind of keep, keep track of how are we in stasis and then maybe decide not to wake us up. I don't know. Hopefully Simmons friendly enough that he wouldn't do that. But talking about the AI, it was all done by IBM. And quote, when it was first deployed in the ISS, Simmons proved they could understand not only the content within its given context, but also the intention behind it. And that was from Matthias Benoek, who's the IBM lead Watson architect. With the help of IBM's Watson Tone Analyzer from the IBM Cloud in Frankfurt, this way it can kind of tell what, what the astronaut's emotional needs are, uh, maybe if there's a different way to evaluate a situation uh, where areas, maybe there's a test going on and how it can come in and help it. 
So Simon 2 is going to be more of a transition from a scientific assistant into an empathetic companion, so it's really cool. But like I said, go and check him out on YouTube, Simon 2. He looks like a little friendly face floating around, you know, with no body. Uh, hopefully he's just a friendly little guy and he isn't going to shut down the whole ISS. Now, NASA engineers have broke the SLS test tank on purpose, and this was all to test extreme limits. So this is similar to the SpaceX, uh, kind of what happened with the Starship, how it just exploded. You want to kind of test what is the maximum, what is the breaking point. So engineers at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, back on December 5th, deliberately pushed the world's largest rocket fuel tank beyond its designed limits. Uh, and they really wanted to understand what its breaking point was. So the test version of the Space Launch System's rocket fuel hydrogen tank withstood more than 260% of expected flight loads over five hours before engineers detected a buckling point, which then obviously it ruptured. So the engineers concluded the test at approximately 11 p.m. So it went on for quite a long time. And the chief engineer of the SLS stages, Neil Oates, said, we purposely took this tank to its extreme limits and broke it because pushing the systems to the point of failure gives us additional data to help us build the rockets intelligently. We will be flying the space launch system for decades to come and breaking propellant tanks today will help safety and efficiency evolve the SLS rocket as our desired missions evolve. So the test version of the tank aced earlier tests with standing forces expected at the engine thrust levels planned for the Artemis lunar missions and it showed no signs of cracking, buckling or breaking. And Marshall's lead test engineer for the tank, Mike Nichols, said the final test marks the largest ever controlled test to failure of a NASA rocket stage pressurized tank. The data will benefit all aerospace companies designing their own rocket tanks. For all the tests, NASA and Boeing engineers simulated liftoff and flight and stresses, all the kind of stresses that the rocket has when it goes all the way through the atmosphere. Uh, and this was all on the liquid hydrogen tank that's structurally identical to the flight tank. The test tank was fitted with thousands of sensors to measure all the stress, the pressure and the temperature, while the high-speed cameras and microphones captured every moment to identify buckling or cracking in the cylindrical tank walls. Luke Denny, who's the qualification test manager for Boeing's test and evaluation group, said the initial tank buckling failure occurred at the same relative location as predicted by the Boeing analysis team and initiated with 3% of the predicted failure load. Accuracy of these predictions against real-life testing validates our structural models and provides a high confidence rate in tank design. So the teams, they're all wrapping up the functional testing of the assembled SLS core stages for the Artemis 1 mission. And already these buildings, they're starting to get the core stage for Artemis 2 missions. Uh, I mean, they've got the 212-foot core stage. And fun fact, that is the largest most complex rocket stage NASA's ever built since the Saturn V stages. So Julie Bassel, who's the manager of SLS Stages office, said, We're happy that NASA's tests with the core stage structural test article will contribute not only to space launch system flights, but also to the design of future rocket propellant tanks. SLS for a while will be the only rocket that can send Orion astronauts and supplies to the moon on a single mission. SLS, Orion, and the Gateway Project, which is going to be in orbit around the moon, they're all NASA's backbone for deep space exploration, which as we know is going to send the first woman and the next man to the lunar surface by 2024. 
So it's interesting to see you've got all these rocket companies working on things, but SpaceX with the Starship and the SLS, they seem to be moving now at the same pace. We've just had both of them get pushed to their max limits, and it's pretty obvious that early 2020 we're definitely going to see some kind of a launch, whether it be the Starship or the SLS. Well, it looks like that's all we have time for today, but remember you can always listen back to these whenever you want. Just search for Future Forecasts with Daniel Trainer on SoundCloud. This show's broadcast through X-Ray 91.1 FM and KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and listen live. Remember, all of what we just covered is happening right now. This isn't science fiction anymore, it's actually reality, especially going into the 2020s and beyond. 